Second Timothy chapter number 3 tonight, and I want to share a few thoughts with you that I shared with my Sunday school class this morning. They've been on my heart all day ever since then, and uh, you know, as a preacher, you, you, you kind of hate to plow ground that you have uh, just recently plowed, even if it's just for a few, uh, and sometimes you shy away from dealing with things, but the Lord hadn't let this escape me, and so uh, for those that are in my Sunday school class, this may be a review, amen, but for those of you that are not, I believe it'll be a help to you. I believe that there's some things that need to be said, uh, you know, and when I say things that need to be said, I don't mean because there's problems in the church or things need to be straightened out or dealt with, but sometimes it's just important to, to clarify your position. Sometimes it's important just to let folks know where you stand, and uh, I want to try to do that this evening with a few things. Second Timothy chapter number 3 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 12. The Word of God says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Let's read once again verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that you'd bless your word tonight, that you'd encourage the hearts of your people, that you'd teach us. Lord, help us just to sit at your feet tonight, to learn your will for our heart, for our life, for our church life. Father, that your Son would be lifted up and glorified and magnified in everything that takes place. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm especially interested tonight in the phrase that Paul uses in verse 14 where he encourages and exhorts Timothy by saying, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. The book of 2 Timothy is one of what we call the pastoral epistles in the Word of God. There are three epistles from the Apostle Paul that are written distinctly to pastors and deal heavily with church life. Let me say that we need to be careful sometimes. I understand the compartmentalization that takes place in our minds between church life and our personal walk and our personal life. And I'm not necessarily dismissing all of that. I mean, I'm aware that there are certain things that are done in the house of God that aren't done in our homes. I'm not an advocate of the home church movement, at least not really in America. I do believe there's a place uh, for home churches, but in, in America, a lot of the home church movement is derived from cantankerous people that want the church to be they, the way they want it and are so hard to please that they can't find uh, more than about three or four people they can get along with for more than a week at any time. <laughs> Amen. Uh, I do believe there's a place for the home church, but what I'm driving at is this. There is such thing as church life. And there are certain things that the Word of God prescribes for church life, certain ways that a church ought to be, ways that a church ought to behave. I believe the greatest thing that Walridge Baptist Church can be is a scriptural New Testament church. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that we have to always choose between the Lord blessing us with growth and standing with the Word of God. There are times when that's the case. 
I believe that a church can be blessed and grow and be fruitful and also be true to the Word of God. But I will say this, I would a lot rather, 20 years from now, Walridge to have 30 and be right than to have 300 and be wrong. That doesn't mean we necessarily have to choose between those two. And I'm not trying to set uh, the idea of, of growth and, uh, and of standards and of scriptural purity and doctrinal purity as being mutually exclusive. There's lots of churches uh, that have grown because God's honored and blessed their obedience to the Word of God. I appreciate that. That's what I want for our church. But what I'm saying is the right thing is that we be right. That's right above all other things. And when I mean right, not, not that uh, all of our opinions be accepted of mankind, not that we win every argument, not that we be cantankerous, but what I mean is I'd rather be scripturally correct than anything else. There are some folks that are scripturally correct but are spiritually bitter and spiritually have a wrong attitude, and I don't want that for our church. I believe there is such a thing as uh, not adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know churches that have everything right on paper, but they're ugly about it. I don't advocate that either. We ought to know how to love one another. We ought to know how to love a lost and dying world. Love them the way that Jesus loves them. And try to get them to Jesus Christ. But there's no excuse to be wrong on the Word of God. No excuse whatsoever. And I believe we ought to do our best to be right according to how the Word of God would have us to be. As a church, as individuals, as a collective body, I believe we ought to strive to be biblical in all things that we do. And so as we make that attempt, I see a few things in this passage that encourage me, that exhort me to stay the path and do the right thing, uh, that cause me to look to the Lord for strength, that cause me uh, to look to the Word of God as my satisfaction. And I want to share a few of them with you tonight. I want you to notice verses 12 and 13 provide for us an ecclesiastical commentary. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean an ecclesiastical commentary? What I mean is they tell us something about church life in these last days that we live in. Now, notice what it says. First off, let's read in verse number one. We didn't read this, but let's read a few verses. Paul writing to Timothy says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now, let me pause there for just a moment. Most of you, as you read that passage, your mind turned to the condition of the world that we live in. And can I say that many of the things that are written here are indicative and are characterized by the world that we live in. There's no question that we live in a prideful and heady and high-minded world. There's no question that we live in a world where good men that desire good things are despised. And sometimes it's easy to get discouraged and feel like we're on the losing side just because of how wicked that this world is in. I told the Sunday school class this morning that even in my short life, and I'm aware it's, it's been a short life thus far, but ten years ago I was a senior in high school. And I'll say this, there are things going on today that just ten years ago, I could have never imagined taking place. I can't imagine what it must be for some of you that have been around for a few more than ten years. And you remember what it was like when you were young, and you could never even fathom that the things that take place today would be taking place. You could have never fathomed there'd be a day when, when city mayors would be demanding to review and see the, the sermons of pastors 
to try to quiet and to try to uh, suppress preaching against sodomy and the sodomite agenda. Let me say that with the mayor that we've got, I worry it could be coming to a town near you. That's just the truth of it. That'll be my first sermon that'll go in her box if it happens. Amen. But what I'm saying is this. There's no question that we have a wicked world. There's no question that we have an ungodly world. But look at the next verse. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. You see, when you read this, your mind immediately went to the condition of the world. And certainly many of the conditions of the world are found here in this laundry list of wickedness. But I'd propose to you tonight, this is a pastoral epistle written to a man of God. And it says that these people would have a form of godliness. In other words, these very same people that are so wicked and are so ungodly, when you looked upon them, they would have a godly form, a godly outward appearance. I'd propose to you tonight that when Paul writes about these things, he's not writing about what goes on outside of the church. He's writing about what's going on inside of the church. He's writing about the wickedness that would permeate the professing Christendom, if we could use that terminology, in the last days. And certainly one of the things, I remember a quote by uh, Dr. Tozer. I don't know if you know who that is, A.W. Tozer, but he said one time, he said that uh, there comes a time occasionally when folks will depart from our congregation because they say that our position is too hard and our standards are too rigid and the things we expect of people are too extreme. Dr. Tozer said this, he said, if I have any apology to make, it is only that our standards are still not as staunch as the Bible standards. And our position is still not as rigid as the Word of God. Now, I'm just being honest now, and I'm not beating anybody up. But I'm just saying this. Most churches, even the staunchest of churches, have a long way to go till we'd really be biblical with what God expects out of people. I, I say that not to discourage or to beat down or to try to skin anyone. I say it because the the world has gotten in such a shape and the church has gotten in such a shape that we have just grown comfortable with the things that God calls perilous, the things that God calls dangerous. You see, Paul is talking about professing Christendom here. And certainly we can look around at the condition of the church today. And we don't even have to look far. And I don't mean necessarily within our body, but I certainly mean within our, our stripe, if we could use that terminology. I mean, we, listen, we don't have to go to the churches that are embracing the sodomites to find some of these things listed in the first few verses. We don't have to go to the churches that don't believe in the Bible to find the things listed in the first four or five verses. We don't have to go to the churches that deny the deity of Christ or the virgin birth to find the things that are mentioned in the first four verses. I mean, churches that have everything right on paper are beginning to see some of these things turn up. Look at them again. It says men should be lovers of their own selves. Boy, I mean, if that's not a picture of contemporary Christianity today, modern Christianity today, Everything's about the blessing we can get from God, the help we can get from God. And don't misunderstand me now. We need help from God. We need the blessing of God. But very rarely do you hear modern-day Christianity say anything about the majesty and the holiness of God and uh, just focus on meeting God's needs. It's all about God meeting our needs. Well, I'm thankful God meets our needs. And God does meet our needs. He meets my every need. Not just my needs, He meets a lot of wants. But there's no question that is indicative of the atmosphere of the church today, 
that the very first thing that Paul mentions and the very most prevalent thing that we see in the church today, and by the way, I'm not just talking about churches that have different music than us or churches that have uh, different appearances. I'm talking about any church is that they're lovers of their own selves. That ranking high and far and above the love of God is a love of self. There's lots of folks that the only thing that dictates their love of God is in as much as God can help them because really what they love is not God, they love themselves. They want a God that's, that's akin to Santa Claus. They don't want a God that's a, a God of heaven. They don't want a God that's their creator, a God for whom they were created. They want a God who was created for them. We live in a day where men are lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, blasphemers. Do we live in a day of blasphemy in the church? Now, what is blasphemy? Well, we could give a lot of different definitions, but can I just touch on the passage that speaks about the unpardonable sin and the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost? You know what it was that they were doing? And we could have a fuss and a fight about what blasphemy of the Holy Ghost is, but there's no question. You know what they said? They said, this man doth cast out devils by Beelzebub. That's what they said. And the Lord says that all manner of sin shall be forgiven you except blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. Now, you can have your opinion, I can have mine, but when, when it's your turn to preach, you can tell yours. But this is mine, that the blasphemy that's spoken of in that context is the attributing of the work of the Holy Ghost to the work of Satan. Do we live in a day where churches are afraid of the Holy Ghost? I believe we do. I mean, listen, if all the, I saw this somewhere, I can't remember where, but it stuck with me. If, if all the Holy Ghost can make you do is shout and run, but it can't make you live holy, you don't have the Holy Ghost. You've got ADHD, amen? Uh, what I'm saying is the Holy Ghost is holy. And that doesn't mean that we're going to be sinless if, we're, uh, if we have the Holy Ghost, but what it does mean is it's going to drive us to a holy life. But we live in a day where the holiness that's demanded by Scripture is seen as extremism and fanaticism and is seen as dangerous and is seen as something that is harmful, particularly to our young people. The work of the Holy Ghost in the lives of young people is something that scares most parents. I'd say we live in a day where blasphemy is in the church. Speaking of parents, disobedient to parents. Have we ever lived in a day where parents were revered less than they are today? I mean, even in the church. You say, why do you think they're so, uh, that this disobedience to parents is, is so prevalent in the church? I'll tell you why. Because the type of worship that most folks' parents partook in is considered foolishness in the eyes of most modern churchgoers. I mean, that, that worship that, where you'd shout, that worship where you'd cry, that worship that centered around prayer and preaching, it wasn't about a rock concert, and it wasn't about uh, interpretive dance, it was just about Christ and His Word and His Spirit. That's considered foolish in the eyes of much of the church today. And they're disobedient to the example that was given them. Notice what it says, and I didn't intend on this, but I believe this is what the Lord wants. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Can I say this? We'd be shocked to find out the way that sodomy has infected professing Christendom in the day that we live in. If you don't believe that, just check up on the gospel music scene sometime. It would shock you to find out how many gospel music singers uh, come out of the closet and turn out to be sodomites. I'm not, listen, I'm not bashing on gospel singers. We need good gospel music. We need folks that can minister to the church in song. I'm not being dismissed, but I'm merely saying that there's problems that nobody wants to talk about, but they exist in the church today. They exist in professing Christendom today. Can I say that a lot of that has come from where we have dismissed God's exhortation to stay away from effeminacy in the realm of men? I don't think being effeminate is necessarily always contained in the idea of how you walk or how you talk. 
but in this idea, this pursuit that mankind has now to soften the disposition that God has given man and to try to adopt a more female perspective about things. You say, preacher, you've got a problem with female perspective? No, not one bit. I'm sure thankful my wife has female perspective, but I don't want my little boy to have a female perspective. I don't want my little boy to be effeminate. I don't necessarily expect him to go out and uh, kill a, a, you know, a bear with his hands when he's three, amen. But I do expect him to be a man and to be proud of being a man. And because we have dismissed God's exhortation to stay away from effeminacy in churches, it has bred the sodomite movement in many of churches today. I'm just going down the laundry list. Don't, don't get upset. Truce breakers. Can I say this? Never has society been so comfortable lying as it is today. Truce breakers. Folks, they'll give you your word, but their word doesn't mean anything. I mean, most folks don't think a thing about lying in this day that we live in. And not just this thing of lying, but this thing of stretching the truth, too. Truce breakers. What does it say? False accusers. Incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. I'll tell you something gets you in hot water real quick. And I say this as a preacher. You stand up for a biblical standard, and that'll get you in hot water real quick. I was talking to uh, the Sunday school class this morning. I'm probably going to say it a lot because I, I taught on this to them. But... Uh, Never have I seen a day when you are so hated for holding a biblical stand against sodomy as the day that we live in. I don't understand it. I mean, it seems like just about any other sin you can take a stand on and you won't be skewered and nailed to the wall like you are over this issue of sodomy. But if you stand up and say, I believe in biblical marriage, you're considered a hate monger. What does the Bible say about biblical marriage? If a man findeth a wife, he findeth a good thing. And you start saying, I believe it's right for a man to find a wife and a woman to find a husband. If that's the will of God for their life. Uh, but I sure don't believe it's right for a man to find a husband and a woman to find a wife. And you're considered a hate monger, a hateful person that needs to be silenced, that needs to be quieted. I was reading a quote the other day. And, uh, I mean, listen, if this, if this rubs you the wrong way, just turn the cat around because I, I can't help you. I'm just speaking truth to you tonight. But I read a quote the other day from uh, Hillary Clinton. She's talking about gun control. And uh, she made this statement concerning gun control. She said, we cannot allow folks to hold dangerous ideals and opinions that are dangerous for the whole of society. Now, stop and think about what she said there. She didn't say we can't allow dangerous actions to take place. That might harm us. She said that their ideals and their opinions are dangerous. It won't be long before they'll be saying that about the Bible you hold in your hand. Now, I mean, it's, we're okay, aren't we? You still love me? I hope that you do. I'm just simply saying tonight that we live in a day where those that do good are despised. They're hated. They're not considered worth the, the dirt it'll take to bury them. They're just hated. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. I'm not going to harp on this because too many preachers spend all their time harping on it. But I will just touch on the fact that uh, come Super Bowl, the house of God will be empty, but the house of football will be full. And, I, and I'm not going to just hammer on it, but, but you know that's true. And I'm saying it is indicative of the problems in the church today. So what I'm saying is Paul's dealing with some church problems. What about those that do stand with Bible Christianity? Look at verse 12. It says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
Never has Bible Christianity been persecuted in the way that it is today. And I'm just telling you, you can call me a a false prophet if you wish to, but I'm not trying to prophesy. I'm merely giving you my opinion of what is coming down the road. But the, the persecution that Christians experience today is like recess compared to the things that are going to be taking place over the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years. I promise you, legislation is being worked on right now to close the doors to Bible-believing churches that won't compromise on the Word of God. We're headed for it. And the measure to which we are persecuted is usually the deter- measure determined by the measure in which we are living godly. And the more godly we live, the more persecuted we are. Boy, that convicts me. That convicts me. It might convict you, I don't know, but it convicts me. It ought to be we're more persecuted than we are. If we'd live more godly, we'd probably be more persecuted. So we see an ecclesiastical commentary. Look at verse 14. What are we to do in this day that we live in? Verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. I'm going to make a few statements that I want you to listen carefully to. We have presented in verse number 14 the cultural position which the church is to take in face of the changing tides and times that we live in. Can I say that again? We have in verse 14 the position, the cultural position that the church is to take in in the face of changing times and tides. I am well aware that the church changes culturally. I think anybody that doesn't believe that would be a fool. If you study what church was like, even just 200 years ago, you'll find it's a lot different than it is today. If you go another 200 years back further than that, then uh, you're getting back into a time when they didn't even have hymn books. I'm aware that the church changes culturally. But where is the church to stand on cultural change? Let me say that the position of the church in the midst of cultural change, inevitable cultural change, is to be that of regressive What does the Bible say? The Bible says, stand in the what? The old paths. Paul exhorts Timothy here to continue in the things which thou hast learned. The book of Jude says we're to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. So in other words, and I've heard people say this, especially about the music issue, you know, everybody, I really don't argue music with folks very much, but if they find out that you use the Red Book, folks want to argue music with you. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll send you letters, try to come and find you to argue about music with And one of the things that people always say to me is this, they always say, well, what about Amazing Grace? They say, Amazing Grace used to be a bar tune, and they changed the words, and now we sing it, and so that ought to make our, our music okay. Well, let me say two things about that. One of the things I'll say about that is this. At the time when the melody for Amazing Grace was written, music was not compartmentalized in the way that it is today. There wasn't this type of music and that type of music and that type. There's just music. Melody was just melody. And based upon your geographic location, that's where the sound of your music was derived from. So this whole idea of secular music and sanctified music is something that has been developed really in the past hundred years or so. You name me one person that is not classical that wrote music in the 1800s that was not spiritual. You name me one. About the only one that you... I can't even remember the fella's name. I know the fella's name uh, that wrote Camp Town Races and all that stuff. 
But you name me any other person than that and you can't find one. You know why? Because music wasn't the way it was. Now, they didn't have the top 40. You couldn't turn on the TV and turn to the, to the, to the bluegrass station or to the rock station or to the rap station. Music was just music. Let me say a second thing about that. Let me say that I'm aware that music does culturally change. But how long has it took for Amazing Grace to begin to be sung in our churches? I'm aware there was a time, not that one, but that one. Actually, that one they would have thought was voodoo because it's electric. But there was a time when the organ was considered ungodly in places. Now, it's not. I'm aware of that. But never do you find the church being prompted to be at the forefront of cultural change. Never. Anywhere in the Word of God. Never are we to lead the way in cultural change. Let me say also that cultural change does not excuse worldliness or ungodliness. Again, going back to this issue of amazing grace and it being no bar tune. Again, the, the saying that it was an old bar tune, it wasn't a bar tune. It was an old tune that was given bar words. So they changed the words because there was nothing wrong with it. There was nothing about that music that denoted or, or, uh, or conjured the idea of worldliness because music was just music. So I say all that, and I, and I didn't even mean to say all that, but I said it. I say all that to say that it provides us our position. Will the church change culturally if the Lord tarries His coming? I'm sure that it will. I'm sure there'll be things that are different a hundred years from now than they are today. But let me say that the biblical position for the church is to be drag kicking and screaming, not to be standing out front as the standard bearer trying to change and embrace and adopt every new whim and every new wave that comes along. And even when the church is drag kicking and screaming, it ought not to be in matters that have to do with separation, with worldliness, with godliness, or with doctrinal truth. Those things should never change. I will say this, I'm convinced that the, war, that the church today, in areas as far as preaching and as far as music, I'm convinced 100% that Christ is honored by it in Walridge Baptist Church. I'm convinced of that. I don't say, I'm not saying it isn't in other places. I'm not saying it is in other places. I don't pastor other churches, but I pastor this one. And I believe that Christ is honored by the music and by the preaching and by the testimonies and by the praise and the worship that takes place within this building. If he wasn't, I believe we ought to shut her down. So I say that in this passage we have the standard. But how does that interwork itself? Look what it says. Continue thou in what? Number one, the things which thou hast learned. The things that work. In other words, we ought not be running after every new wind, every new doctrine, every new movement, every new trend. We ought to stick to the things that we've learned. Where have we learned them? He goes on a little further. Can I say that you can learn the right thing, but you can also learn the wrong thing? Isn't that true? And I don't believe that we ought to be traditionalists. I believe we ought to be biblicists. We need to be very careful. Uh, there's a lot of damage done in churches by folks that sometimes have the mentality, well, it's always been done that way. Well, there's some things that have always been done that way because it's right, but then there's some things always been done that way because that's just the way they've always been done. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into the ditch of traditionalism the same way that we need to be careful that we don't fall into the ditch of pursuing after every new thing that comes along. Where do we park ourselves? We park ourselves in the area and category of being a biblicist. Because notice what he says, Continuing thou in the things which I hast learned. He says, and hast been assured of. Hast been assured of. The things that you know to be right. The things that God has blessed. The things that God has honored the things that lift up Jesus Christ. There are certain things that we've been assured are the right way. I, you know, and, and I'm, we'll talk about the Bible here in a second, but can I say, I've been assured of this King James Bible. I've been assured of it. 
God stamped His blessing and His approval upon this book. And we can talk about texts if you want to. I can, I can talk about texts with you. We can talk, I mean, listen, we can talk about Westcott and Hort and Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and we can talk about the received uh, texts, and we can talk about the Septuagint and this, that, and the other. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about that. We can talk about the way that it was translated. We can talk about literal translation or dynamic equivalency. I can talk about all those things with you. But can I just simplify it by saying I've been assured of this book? I've been assured of it. I've never found a single mistake in it. You know those, those folks that they say, well, you know, the problem with the Bible is it's just got all those mistakes. They never can point one out. They never can point one out. At least one. Can I say this? There are no mistakes in the Word of God. There are difficulties in the Word of God. But there are no mistakes. I challenge anyone. And I'd say it if we had 3,000 in here tonight. I challenge anyone to show me a mistake in the Word of God. You can show me difficulties and you take a few moments and read your Bible and you can find answers to it. But you'll never find a single mistake. We've been assured of these things. Notice what it says. It says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Now, I said to uh, the class this morning that I believe there are two connotations here. One is this. I do believe Paul's talking about himself when he says that. You say, why do you believe that, preacher? Because of what he's just said in verse number 10. He says, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. So I do think Paul's talking about himself. I do believe he's talking about the apostles. When he says, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and he's saying this, Trust those folks that you know to be of God. There's a, a, and I don't believe this is true of this church. I hope it's not anyways. I don't believe it is. But let me say that there's a lot of churches where the congregation gets fed more by TV preachers than they do by their pastor. And sometimes that's intentional. Sometimes it's not intentional. But can I say this? You can glean a lot of good things off the television. You can glean a lot of trash, too, off the television. But can I say this? You ought to stick with the, with the person that you know can get a hold of God. And I don't say that about me. I mean, like I said, I don't think that's a problem with our church. I hope it's not. Uh, but I just merely say it as a matter of, of academic fact that I believe it's biblically correct to stick with the person that you know can get a hold of God. And you know that God is used. There's been a lot of church members throughout the history of time, or throughout the history of television anyway, that have gotten all twisted around and backwards and wound up out of church because of TV preachers. And I'm not against preachers on TV. A lot of good ones. I think TV is a medium that we can use for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think we're all aware of the cultural connotations of the uh, of the forked tongue, grease-haired, you know, TV preacher. And there's a lot of them that are out there. So I'm merely saying this. We ought to know who we've learned it from. We ought to know what, what fountain we're drinking from. We ought to know where we're getting our bread from. We ought to know where it's coming from. But I believe there's a second connotation here, and I believe that it also refers to the Holy Ghost. Because who is it that really teaches us? Well, it's not me that teaches you. I can present you with truth, but I can't teach you. You've heard the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I can present truth to you, but I can't apply truth in you. But the Holy Spirit of God, He's the one. The Bible says that we have no need that any man teaches. That self-same anointing shall teach us. And so I think one of the things that Paul is exhorting Timothy in is he's saying, Timothy, stick with the things that the Holy Ghost has witnessed with. Stick with the things that the Holy Ghost responds to. And can I say that I have seen the Holy Ghost respond to preaching, Bible preaching, 
in ways that are supernatural. Oh, listen, you can get the fog machines and the lasers and the whole band going and you can have a real emotional show. And it's good on Sunday, but it's gone on Monday. But biblical pre- God has still chosen the foolishness of preaching. And Bible preaching still gets the job done. And God still honors it. Look what it says in verse number 15. I think this is one of the reasons that he's talking about the Holy Ghost. He says, And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. One of the reasons I believe that he's talking about the Holy Ghost in this passage is because of the language he uses in verse number 15. There's no question that Timothy had a godly upbringing. We do not know about Timothy's father, but we do know about his mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois, and that they had strengthened him in the faith and built him up in the faith and that they had uh, faith in the Lord. But I don't believe that he's necessarily talking about the faith that he's derived from his upbringing necessarily. I believe what he is denoting is the work that God had been doing in his life from the time that he had been a child. In other words, God had been witnessing things to Timothy through the Scriptures ever since he had been young. Whether it does have to do with his mother and grandmother or not, I believe what's being said here, because notice what it says. It says, Holy Scriptures. That's unique language, Holy Scriptures. You don't find that all the time in the Word of God. You don't find the Bible all the time called Holy Scriptures. But the times that you do, it deals with the work of the Holy Ghost in the giving of Scriptures. Look what it says in verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So I think we ought to stick with the things that the Holy Ghost has witnessed in our midst and in our lives. Let me give you a final thought and I'll hush. I want to see in verse 16 and 17, we see a doctrinal commentary. A doctrinal commentary. We see a commentary about the church, and we see a commentary about him personally and the things that he ought to do. But then there's a commentary about doctrine and about the Word of God. Notice it carefully. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know, I think we have a smart God. I do. I think we have a smart God. And I'm not being a smart aleck saying that. I mean that. I believe we have a smart God. You know why I make that statement? For two reasons. One, because God's smart enough if He's going to give Scripture to preserve Scripture. It's just that simple. We don't have a God that's that nearsighted. And let me say this, that as far as the problem that time or cultural changes or uh, or uh, language changes would provide. You understand that we have a God that's the God of all nations. You understand that we have a God that inhabiteth eternity. You understand that we have a God that is able and that was aware that time changes would happen, that language changes would happen, that, that translation difficulties might be... Inca- I mean, we've got a smart God. We've got a God that's able not just to inspire His Word, but to preserve His Word. And He promised He'd do it in Psalms chapter 12. He promised that He would do it. But I believe we have a smart God too because God has a way of saying things that He knows are going to be needful. Now, if God had said that Scripture is given by inspiration of God, that would have been accurate and true. He could have said that. That would have been true. Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That would have been true. But He didn't say Scripture is given by inspiration of God. He said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I believe God is trying to provide an emphasis here that every single word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord is good. Not just the ideas, not just the truths, but the individual words. In fact, you'll find that through the Scripture time and time again, God is very careful to denote that each and every word is preserved, is inspired. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. Every word. Not just a few, not just some, but every word. And so if God tells me that I can only be sustained by every word, then God can't meet my needs unless He gives me every word. Not just the ideas, but the particular, the individual words. And I believe God's given them to us, and I believe God's preserved them for us too. I, I, and I, there's always folks that want to ask me about other languages uh, when we talk about the King James Bible. There's always folks that want to say, well, you know, what about the Germans? What about, you know, this? What about that? What, what do you believe about? I will say this, two things. One, God promised to preserve His Word. God didn't promise to preserve it in every language. God never said that, but He promised to preserve it. Let me say secondly this, that God has always given His Word in a particular language for a particular purpose. He gave it to the Jews that it might be preserved, that it might be sustained, that it might be kept pure, that it might be kept perfect. We, we can't even fathom the, the requirements, the strict guidelines that the Masoretic Jews went to in the, in the copying of the Word of God. I mean, these are men that literally, as they copied the Word of God, if, if they made a, co- a mistake in copying it, if they made any more than three mistakes in copying it, then they had to stop, throw it away, and start over. That's Genesis to Malachi. Any more than three mistakes as they were copying it. In other words, if they got down to the very last verse in Malachi and made that third mistake, then they had to take it, throw it away, and start over again. And you know, those mistakes, the ones that they had made, they could correct. But God said, I don't even want you to play fast and loose with my word when it comes to correcting it. If you make three mistakes, it's out. Throw it away. Make another copy of it. Do you know that they so revered the name of the Lord that when they came to the name Jehovah that they would stop, they would go, take their clothes off, bathe, put clean clothes on, come back, take a quill that had never written anything, and ink that had never been dipped in, and they would write the name Jehovah. And then if that wasn't enough, they would stop, throw away that quill, throw away that ink, go, change, bathe, and put clean clothes on to come back and to continue writing. What I'm saying this is a lot of this backroom translating that's been done over the past hundred years, this, this closed door, hush, hush, handful of folks giving their interpretation, that's not the way the Word of God was preserved for many, many years. When it came to the Greeks, I believe that God gave His Word that it might be propagated. I believe God gave His Word in Greek because Koine Greek was the national or the, the universal language at that time. It was the common man's language. It wasn't classical Greek. It was Koine Greek. It's what would have been spoken amongst individuals. And by the way, let me say this, that this whole notion of a Septuagint, and people have different ideas and opinions about it. And if you don't even know what a Septuagint is, I mean, you know, if you think that's part on a 43 Chevy, then, you know, don't worry about it. But if you know what the Septuagint is supposed to be, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, can I say that it's never even been substantiated that a Septuagint existed? They say that's the Bible that Jesus would have used. Well, I have a problem with that, friend. If he was the quintessential Jew, then what would the quintessential Jew be doing using a Greek translation of the Old Testament? And for that matter, the notion that a Greek translation of the Old Testament was prevalent in that time of the Pharisees and that time of such stringent uh, obedience uh, down to the letter of the law, I have a hard time believing that a group of Pharisaical Jews would even lay a finger on a copy of the Old Testament that was translated into the language of a group of people they consider to be dogs. So I, I say all that. <laughs> well, I was loaded up, wasn't I? I say all that merely to say this, that God's a smart God. 
And when he gave his word to the Greeks, he gave it to the common man that it might be propagated. I'd say when he gave it in English, he gave it for these last times that it might be preserved perfectly and that it might be a combination of those two purposes, that it might be preserved perfectly and flawlessly, but also that it might be propagated. You can go all over the world and read English on menus and street signs. So I just merely say this. There is no requirement of God to provide and preserve His Word in every single language. And actually, it would not be God's M.O. to do such a thing. But I do believe God has preserved His Word perfectly and flawlessly. And I believe God's very specific to tell us that. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Notice the next phrase. And it's profitable. It's profitable. Every bit of it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You know, I've heard people say this before. And I know what they mean. I'm guilty of saying this. I think every preacher is. But we'll say sometimes, you know, that'll preach. Well, everything will preach. All Scripture is profitable. Every bit of it. Those verses you like to skip over in the Old Testament because it's so-and-so begat. So they're profitable. And I'm not saying I've never skipped over them either, mind you. But they're profitable. Every scripture is profitable. Every portion of it is profitable. I've heard folks talk about, and I know what they mean when they say this. What they mean is they don't want fussing and fighting over uh, old wives' fables and uh, questions of genealogy and so on. But I've heard people say before, well, you know, it's just I'm against doctrine. I've heard people say, and I know what they mean. I'm not fussing at them. I know what they mean, but they'll say, well, I'm against doctrine. Doctrine's divisive. I was in church, and when doctrine came in, and I, I know what they mean. Usually what they mean is premillennialism. But, but I know what they mean by saying that. But, but if we're going to be real scriptural about it, let me just say this, that if we're not going to preach doctrine, we'd have to throw the whole Bible out because all Scripture is profitable for doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching. That's all it means. And we can learn something from every portion of the Word of God. Let me give you one final truth. We see that God is very clear, very specific, that His Word has been inspired. And notice that His Word is still inspired. Verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's still inspired, and it's inspired today. But He says in verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect. Now, what does that word perfect mean? It means mature. It doesn't mean sinless. It means mature. The man of God may be perfect. Truly furnished unto all good works. You know what that tells me? That tells me this. That tells me that the Word of God's all we need. If God gave His Word so that the man of God could be perfect, could be mature, and so that he could be truly furnished, that tells me this. Nothing can replace the Word of God. And the Word of God is absolutely vital to the church and to the life of the believer. I'll say this. We need to know what we believe. Don't you believe that? I don't want my church, I, I, I don't want, I say my church, it's the Lord's church, but the church I preach at. I, I don't want, when people ask you all what you believe, I don't want you to say, ask the preacher. I want you to know what you believe. You have a perfect Bible tonight, and it's all you need. Now, I, I understand we need the church, we need preaching, but what I'm saying is for you to be what you need to be in Jesus Christ, every answer that you'll need is found in this King James Bible. This is what you need. This is all you need. I believe that God said what He said to Timothy, and Paul you, used Paul to do it because Timothy was living in a time when men were following after every weight and every doctrine and every wind. I believe what the Lord is really telling Timothy here is this. Timothy, continue in the things that you know. It's so tempting to go after every new thing when it comes along. I know that. 
if you don't think, listen, there's nobody in, in a church that feels more pressure to go after the new thing and the next thing than the preacher. There's probably no one in a church that thinks as much about church growth as the preacher does and wants it and wants to see God bless. But the exhortation that Paul gives is so strong for that very reason. Because as preachers, and not only as preachers, but you as church members need to understand that our position is not to win the whole world. The whole world will never be won. And our position is not to gain favor with men. Our position is not to have as many people as we can cram in the building. If God chooses to bless you, that's wonderful. We'll take it. But our responsibility is to what? To continue. To continue. To stay the course. To do what's right no matter what. There's lots of folks seeking the will of God. And you know what the will of God for you is? Continue. Continue in the things which I have learned. Lots of folks trying to figure everything out, figure out the next step. God's told them the next step. The next step is to continue thou. Continue thou. Stay with the Word of God. Stay in church. Stay in your prayer life. Stay true to the things of God. Continue thou. That's the right thing. Let's not go chasing after everything. I told you, I don't, I don't preach that message because there's something needs straightened out or some kind of problem. But it's just good for us to know where we ought to stand in the Word of God, to see it in the Bible. Uh, not just men's opinions, but to see what God commands us to be. And God commands Wall Ridge Baptist Church. He says, continue thou. Continue thou in the things that are proven, the things you've been assured of, the things you know God honors and that God works in. Continue in those things. And we ought to continue till Jesus comes. Don't you believe that?